Hey, Stan. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Good morning. Great to be here. Yeah. So, Stan, as a CFT therapist, you know, uh, you've done a lot of work in the fields of anxiety and depression. And those are two of the main areas that we're going to be chatting about today. And, uh, you know, as a practicing psychologist, as I'm sure you've, you know, seen the rise of anxiety and depression is just so prevalent in our times today. And I think that it's important to be able to help people get some tools and some insight into exactly what's going on and, you know, just look at it from a compassion-focused therapy lens. And so I'm really looking forward to to our chat today. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I think you're right. It's it's important stuff. There's so much going on in the world, isn't there, really? And, and let alone things closer to home. So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking through it all with you. Great. So I think a, a great place for us to start is really to just lay a bit of a foundation uh, about the theoretical orientation of compassion-focused therapy. So maybe let's walk through the the, the three-circle model of affect regulation, of emotional regulation. Um, so how, how would you describe that in, in a really simplistic way? Well, compassion-focused therapy, I, I suppose one of the things to start with is just to mention that, that you know, CFT is really an, an evolutionary-based approach to psychotherapy. It, it's an integrative approach, but, but at, at the heart of it is the, uh, the evolutionary kind of theory. And I suppose uh, one aspect of that is, as Professor Paul Gilbert, who, who's the um, founder and developer of, of CFT, as, as Professor Gilbert would say, we have tricky brains. Uh, he would say it in more of a Derbyshire accent, um, so I can't quite do that. Yeah. But um, but this is really, in some ways, uh, at the heart of it. In some ways, this is also where we really would begin with CFT, and that is to think about these evolved brains that we have, these brains that have evolved over, well, millions of years and, and have kind of adapted and changed really to aid in human survival and reproduction pretty much you know that that's that's sort of what evolution is is about is, is um you know survival and, and reproduction um, and unfortunately evolution's not so worried about our happiness i guess <laughs> and mm. so there will be asp there are aspects of the human brain that are exquisitely designed for aiding in our survival, but come along with trade-offs. A lot of evolved mm. aspects of our brains and bodies and so on really come along with, with certain trade-offs. And, and so this is a key place to start with CFT is just to recognize that we do have these, these tricky brains. Uh, what the, yeah. the first piece of that is what you're alluding to, which is, is we, we like to affectionately call it the three circles model. Um, and it really starts to give us a, a bit of a sense of actually the, the, the old brain aspect of our, our brains. And when, when I say old brain, I guess I mean evolutionarily speaking, uh, that the aspects of the human brain that, that perhaps we share with other mammals and other animals and so on. Um, and these three circles, they're really, they've evolved to, um, to help us to survive. And the, the, the one that people often are pretty aware of the first circle, 
uh, is known as the threat system. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the, the aspect of, of our old brains, if you like, that, that really that the motive there is, is threat protection and safety seeking, pretty much. So it does come along with emotions such as anxiety and, and anger or disgust. Uh, among you know other things as well, and actually a lot of people have heard of the fight flight response. Mm-hmm. So this is the threat system from a CFT point of view. The fight flight response uh, kind of fits in to the threat system. In fact, you can think of it as fight flight freeze appease, or fight flight freeze yeah. fawn is uh, another way that that people think about it. But basically. The threat system has these these four different ways that we might try to deal with with threat. We might try to fight it off. We might flee or run away. We might kind of freeze, you know, on the spot. Um, I have a, a a little kitten, and you know, if if she's if I'm lying in bed and she's there, and my toe just moves a little bit, boom, she pounces on. <laughs> you know, so I have to lie deadly still. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's a bit off track, but yes, the, that's the freeze response, and then the appease or, or fawn response. Actually, this is a very interesting one because mm. for humans, one of the biggest threats is social threats. The idea that we might be disapproved of, or rejected, or even cast out of the group, uh, and of course, certainly for ancient humans, you know, if if we were cast out of the group, uh, then well, in, in some ways, then we were dead, basically, if we were yeah. out alone in the wilds and so on. So the appease strategy is often a, an attempt to kind of appease or, or seek approval, especially of those other uh, humans that, that might we might feel are, are of higher rank or further up the hierarchy or, or something like that. Or the group so as the a whole. that's the first circle. Or the group as a whole, exactly, right. yes. And yeah, so, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that point quick because I think it, it's really important yeah. that, you know, we, we have these social defense mechanisms put in because as humans, we relied on each other to survive, right? There was no way around it. Like, it's like there's that this phenomenon of, of how non-social uh, group, non-social animals uh, who only rely on themselves for survival, only about like one to 2% of them make, make it to adulthood, right? And so, because they, they produce the scatter response. So when there's a threat, everyone, it's free for all, right? But then humans come in and they're like, no, we stick together. That's how we survive because a group of humans can protect each other against oh, an enormous variety of predators, uh, but the cost yes. of that is that if you don't fit into that group or you get ostracized or kicked out, you know, you're as good as dead. And so that appease response is a survival instinct, right? Which is weird to think absolutely. about, but it absolutely is. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, if we're sort of facing down a lion out in the wilds and, you know, maybe there's half a dozen of us or something, you know, we'll probably be able to shoo the lion away maybe or something like that. But if we're facing down a lion alone, yeah, then we're dead. And, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. And, and when, if we think about it today, <clears throat> a lot of us worry about what other people think of us or are we being approved of and, and, um, we sort of do a lot of mind reading and other things like that. And it all sort of, you know, com- comes back to this very um, 
core aspect of of just those those old brain aspects mm. of ourselves which which really are all about trying to seek safety by staying safely in the group yeah seek safety and self-preservation right and absolutely and that's from a biological perspective like the most important thing because it doesn't matter and nothing else matters if you're going to die right so mm-hmm. That just when that system takes over, like man, it takes over, right? Yes, that is actually a really great point about the threat system. It's it's a very immediate reactive system, and in fact, uh, you and you and some of your listeners might be aware too that that it we we often don't have to practice our threat system. <laughs> you know that part of of our response is yeah. is actually already you know very very reactive, very fine tuned. Uh, and we might walk down the street and pass a bus stop and there's a, a, a little collection of, of youths or something in the bus stop and they start laughing and suddenly it's, oh, you know, what, what's wrong with me sort of thing. You know, that, yeah. that's the way that the threat system really uh, responds very, very immediately. Oh, absolutely. And it's an overwhelming sensation, right, a lot of the time. Well, it feels like life or death. Yeah, you know, that's that's so we we sort of oh you know I I I should stop worrying about what people think we'll we'll say to ourselves but actually if we think about it from this evolutionary point of view it's actually it it feels like it's a matter of life or death that that's mm-hmm. where it really comes from uh, and so it makes sense that you know it's valid really that that actually we'll we'll have these 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 feelings these thoughts these physical sensations just kind of arise in us, you know, as, as we're going about our day. Yeah, 100%. And it's normal. I mean, it's not great, but, you know, it, it's not our fault that this is how we're built. There you go. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's not our fault. That's what we're really wanting to do here is to sort of de-blame or de-shame ourselves for kind of just how our brain works and how it's yeah. evolved to work. It was... Our brain was designed for us in that way, rather than designed by us. Mm. And so we just—it's—it's it's built in to the system. So we want to sort of de-shame ourselves around all of that, and yeah, try to try to manage it. You know, try to find ways that we can also. But but that's that's the threat system. That's mm-hmm. the the first of the three circles. Um, the second circle or emotion regulation system is known as the drive system so you know if the threat system had its way uh i always say you know it it would keep us safe and warm in the cave you know we'd be kind of hiding safely in the cave but we couldn't stay in the cave you know we had to go out and and get stuff you know we had Mm -hmm. to find well food and so on but perhaps find a mate or or maybe find other resources and tools and 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 all the rest of it so there's this second part, which also evolved and which also was a part of our survival and reproduction, and that's this drive system, this kind of um, wanting, pursuing, obtaining, achieving, uh, and often emotions that come along with the drive system are more along the lines of perhaps excitement or pleasure mm-hmm. or, or, um, or a sense of, of achievement or, or those kind of things. Uh, and so, you know, even today, you know, the drive system is really about kind of um, seeking some sort of success or, or, you know, that kind of thing. The tricky thing, of course, about 
the drive system. I mean, it comes along with trade-offs too. You know that that um, you know that idea of uh, hedonic adaptation is, mm. is an interesting little phrase. That idea that you know we we might be interested in getting a boat perhaps and and then we do our research and we're sort of excited about it and we're thinking about the boat and then one day we buy the boat and we are very happy and we're out on the here it would be out on Morton Bay and uh, driving our little boat and all that sort of stuff and then we go out again and it's still quite good and then we go out again and it's good and and then you know, eventually we want a bigger boat. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the drive system is this sort of we're, we're sort of hedonic adaptation. We, we kind of want more and more. And if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, that, that makes sense too. You know, we couldn't go out, get a meal and then rest on our laurels. You know, we had to go out again the next day and the mm-hmm. next day. And so it all makes sense. It's just these these trade-offs that we're also grappling with. and And so threat system and drive system can often be sources of suffering yeah. for us as well. So, yeah, the hedonic adaptation is very interesting. It, it's, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's this, you know, okay, so we have to have a system that drives us towards achieving things and getting resources, right? But in the fact of having that system means that, well, that system's always going to be there. So even when you get things and you acquire things and you get resources and you achieve status or whatever it is that you're currently driven towards, well, it doesn't just switch off your drive system in virtue of having achieved it or gotten it, right? It just moves on to something else because mm. the system is in place, right? Mm. In a similar way, the threat system, you know, just because you survived the threat today, right? The lion didn't eat you doesn't mean you're like, oh, cool, the threat system's done now, right? It's like, no, that system has to be there all the time because it evolved to protect us at all times and the drive system evolved to drive us and motivate us at all times. And so that's why we fall into these traps of continuously wanting more and more. And so even if you Mm. get all the things that you think you want, or maybe you do want them and you get all of them, well, that's great and you'll feel satisfied and it will feel good but then at some point, you know, you adapt and then you're like, oh, I want more stuff now, different stuff, mm. bigger boat, you know, more money <laughs> or more cars, yeah. like whatever it is, because mm. that draft system's still there. Mm. And we wouldn't want to lose either of them, to no. be honest, either. You know, like threat and drive systems are still very useful today, you know, if we're about to cross the road and a, a, a bus go onk sort of thing. We want to have that threat system to help us jump out of the way, I guess, you know, so, or, and, and lots of examples where yeah. the threat system is still useful and, and certainly the drivers as well. Um, but civilization is built on those two systems, arguably. And the third one, which we'll come to in a moment. Yeah. But yes, exactly, exactly. That's, it's, you know, much of our, success as a species is is thanks to some of these kind of old brain functions and and the way they've they've worked i mean they're interesting though too because the different systems will have interesting relationships with each other as well mm. so for example um you know the, the the primitive humans walking along the, the the bush or something, the forest, and, and they hear a rustle in the bushes. And the first thing that kicks in is the threat system, which sort of, you know, wants you to flee. That could be something that'll eat me. 
Mm-hmm. And the next thing that'll kick in is the drive system. Ooh, that could be something I could eat. And yeah. so, you know, uh, uh, you sort of can sometimes be stuck between threat and drive and, and um, you know, the, it's it's sort of the, the classic example would be something like, you know, perhaps you remember this yourself um, is the, the sort of the university student who, mm-hmm. you know, kind of really, really wants to get, you know, full marks in their exam, but is scared that they're going to fail. And so they have a really clean apartment because they do the vacuuming and, <laughs> you know, they procrastinate or order. You know, that's that yeah. kind of getting feeling stuck between threat and drive and then perhaps this behavioral inhibition, this with this stuck point, and maybe we procrastinate or or things like that. And there's a there's various ways that threat and drive can relate to each other. Yeah. And I think everyone would have an intuitive understanding of competing drives, at least, right? Where it is that sense of I want more than one thing that contradict each other. So in your example, yes. it's like I want to run away from this thing that might eat me, but I also want to eat and maybe I can eat this thing, right? Yes. And then, you know, or as a university student, you get so stuck in the drive and, you know, then the, the threat system kicks in and goes, yeah, but like it's dangerous to do that or like if you aim too high, you'll never achieve it and all sorts of nonsense that goes on mm-hmm. in the mind. And meanwhile, you're just looking for something to do to like make yourself feel better and so you end up like cleaning because, you know, mm. cleaning makes you feel good or something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or, or lots of things, lots of experiential avoidance, as they might say in ACT, might come into that sort of aspect of it, you know, that we perhaps we, we have a drink or, you know, we sort of uh, avoid going to, to university or, you know, there might be other things we do to try to try to sort of relieve the, the tension there between threat and drive. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point is that there is that just that heavy tension, right? And it's mm. a very distressing when you're in that position, mm. especially if they're very strong drives. If they're, I mm-hmm. think if they're relatively small drives, it's easier to manage that tension because it's less tension and the consequences yeah. of your decision are less significant. But when you have these, what feel like massive decisions and massive drives, mm. well then the consequences are so much larger, they seem to be so much larger. And so the tension that builds up is therefore much greater. And so we're even more driven to relieve it, right? And mm-hmm. if we don't know how to do it in healthy ways, we turn to unhealthy ways because we're just looking for something to relieve us in that moment because it's too mm-hmm. uncomfortable and unpleasant to deal with and just sit with it. And maybe we don't know that it will pass if we just let it be, right? And in CFT, we think of those as motives. So the threat system has certain motives, namely motives around threat protection and, and seeking safety. And the drive system has certain motives, namely around um, obtaining and achieving and, and so on. Um, and those are the competing motives that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that create that, that tension. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about this third system. Well, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, um, the thing about humans is that uh, you know, our babies are born terribly, terribly vulnerable. 
Um, you know, they they're sort of born premature, really, in some ways. You know, we we when we evolved to be standing upright and so on, that the pelvis changed shape and and the babies started to be born earlier and more vulnerable. Uh, when a baby's born, it's sort of well, it, it it's. And it's probably not right to say that it's pathetic. That's a bit mean, but um, it's sort of it's, it's definitely it's it yes, that's a bit mean as well. But yeah, anyway, it's certainly helpless. It, it can't do helpless. anything. Helpless, lovely. That's all. Yeah, much yeah, better. Yeah. Much better. <laughs> um, I mean, it even it even takes you know quite a lot of work to you know get them on the breast and to feed them. You know, they certainly can't walk or or talk for a couple of years. You know, often. They don't leave home well into their twenties, you know. So, um, human babies yeah. are, are terribly vulnerable. So we we had to we we developed this third system, which is known as the soothing affiliative system. Mm-hmm. So this is all about um, really sort of closeness and connection, um, caring, motivation, looking after each other. Um, it, it's a lot of it, so it's it's soothing affiliation. So it's it's sort of a, the the affiliation piece is that piece around uh, connection and, and closeness with others, uh, and looking after each other. And so you know we we often know intuitively. You know, for example, if a little child is is learning to ride a bike and and the inevitable happens, you know, they fall off their bike and. Um, you know they've scraped their knee and they're sort of upset about it. They're suffering a little bit by this, by this fall. You know we often know intuitively. You know you you, you go over to them. You you perhaps um, pick them up and give them some soothing words. You might kind of validate what they've been through. You know like oh you know that's a nasty one. And and then you might kind of reassure them. You know you you'll be okay. And 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 then you might do something to help. You might get a Band-Aid or sort of something practical like that. And then you might encourage them, you know, okay, back on the bike type thing. You know, we sort of know intuitively as well. This is also built into our evolved brains is, mm. is this kind of ability or capacity to look after each other. And, and I mean, humans can be, well, humans can be sort of cruel potentially as well, you know, to each other maybe. And, or to other humans or to other species. But but actually, you know, mostly we look after each other, which yeah. I think is why where there's eight plus billion of us on the planet. You know, we, we mostly look after each other and care for each other. And, and there's very interesting archaeological evidence of, of ancient human remains where certain disease processes in, in the bones there sort of would suggest that that, that person would never have survived to the age they got to had they not had others looking after them bringing yeah. them water or food or shelter and so that's all this has always been a part of uh you know kind of our species as well this this sort of looking after each other yeah like i remember reading about this phenomenon in uh, i believe it was archaeology where someone was saying how they defined um, one of the markers of civilization was to see healed bones, right? Because in the wild, an animal that breaks its bones dies. Uh, but to see... And is left behind, really. Is left behind, yeah, yeah most of the time. Mm. Um, or even if they aren't left behind, they're not going to survive very long because the yes. predators are going to come en masse and just have their way, right? And I, anyway, so yeah, so w- when humans were able to heal the broken bones of 
someone in their um, group, that was a mark of like significant social development, right? It was no longer leaving people behind where possible, uh, which is what you were saying as well. It's like without the rest of the group, we wouldn't have made it as far as we did. And mm. so it this affiliative care, it's also, it, I think it's important to think about it as really hardwired into us, right? It's not like we're choosing this. It's we evolved this capacity to do so and it's in everyone and you can even look at the neuroscience of it too right like affective neuroscience and um you know like one of the things is like mirror neurons right the ability to feel what the other person is feeling simply by like interacting with them non-verbally right now that's a capacity that we need to have empathy uh and that's really important in order to bond socially and to support each other and to know what's happening. And that prob I don't know if this is true or not, but I would think that that probably came before language evolved because it's a pre-verbal way of uh, communicating distress that you don't need language for and then language evolved subsequently. Would you think that that, do you think that that makes sense to think about it that way? Yeah, well, definitely, um, you know, th w humans evolved to have a kind of a, a social awareness, a, a sort of a knowing awareness, a, an intentionality uh, about them and, and things like uh, empathy and so on absolutely kind of arises out of that. But so too does compassion, mm. which I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of start to get to shortly. That, that, that it does. Compassion kind of to a certain degree arises out of the soothing system. It's certainly... Yeah the caring motivation that's there in the soothing affiliative system kind of is a, is a part of compassion. Yeah. But, but interestingly enough, uh, compassion really can draw on each of these emotion regulation systems. You know, sometimes uh, to be compassionate, there, there might be threat system activation. We can be feeling anxious or, or even a kind of a righteous anger. Or So to compassion can be textured with various emotions and so on but no i do think you're right there's a kind of a an element there of of um the, you know that that sort of the neuroscience behind some of the the, the connection and the social connection yeah. sometimes where the threat system is known as fight flight soothing affiliative system is sometimes known as rest and digest mm -hmm. you know, that that sort of notion that when the the threats are gone and our tummies are full then we can be in this soothing system, this sort of rest and digest and sort of, you know, I often think of the the little lion cubs who are, you know, they've had their food or whatever and, and they're just yeah. rolling about with each other and relaxing and playing and, and so on. So that, that can often yeah. be part of the soothing affiliative system as well. Yeah, I like the, you know, fight, flies, fight flight, freeze, fawn, rest, digest, tend, befriend right like good that, gotcha there you yeah, go yeah that would be the the, the comparative four and what's really Absolutely. fascinating about the soothing system is that it can override the threat system and to think about that is you think about how you know a, like some sort of mother bear or mother lion or something like that is willing to sacrifice herself or himself it's the father figure but whatever you know the parental figure is willing to literally give up their lives for the sake of their young, right? Which means that they have to override their threat system with something 
in order to do that. Mm -hmm. So the threat system is extremely powerful. And yet the compassion soothing system is even more powerful sometimes, mm. right? But yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. I mean, I think think of of you know acts of of great uh, altruism where somebody you know sort of does something to sacri- you know sacrificing uh, a, a part or or the the whole of themselves in order to uh, sort of you know protect or save or or reduce the suffering of of another. Yeah. In fact, compassion quite often involves the giving or maybe even the sacrificing of something. Uh, and, you know, we might sort of talk more about just, you know, certain qualities of compassion like wisdom and strength and courage uh, and, and kind of a, this caring motivation driving the whole thing, this, this desire to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And you're right, sometimes that, that can, um, you know, sort of override or, or certainly help to uh, down-regulate threat. Yeah. In some ways, one of the nice ways to think about how we we op- might operate these three circles when they're nicely in balance is we can think of, you know, when the threat system is activated and there's anxiety or anger or something like that, um, the soothing affiliative system becomes kind of like the safe haven there. Mm. You know, we move from threat to soothing uh, and that sort of helps to down-regulate threat to help us to feel safe and then from the soothing system, we might go out to the drive system. You know, we can go out and explore the world and, and kind of and, and so on uh, from that soothing system now as a secure base. Mm-hmm. So the soothing affiliative is often kind of safe haven for threat and secure base for drive as well. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense. And I think that that's one of the fundamental lessons of CFT right, or the therapeutic interventions is learning to regulate that threat system. Because like, if we look at people who have, let's say, chronic anxiety, for example, well, yes, what that presumably means is that their threat system is activated basically all the time. And all all the time that they have anxiety, it's not really, really all the time, but like a lot of the time. Uh, And they don't know what to do with it. Because they don't know how to self soothe or get soothed by other means, right? And, and actually, this is where we... I, I guess I mentioned threat drive and soothing as kind of old brain functions yeah. uh, from an evolutionary point of view. But we also have what you might think of as kind of new brain functions, which are still ancient, but um, kind of evolutionarily speaking, perhaps these developed, you know, slightly more recently. And, and this is kind of, you know, this is really what you're talking about here too. You know, if you think of the, the zebra out on the you know, African plains or something like that and, and uh, just sort of standing around eating grass quite comfortably or, you know, and, but then the lion gets hungry and gets up and starts to chase the zebras and the zebra's physiological state kind of goes way up and now they're running and fleeing and jumping and trying to get away from the, the lion. And then eventually the lion catches one, I mm. suppose. It's not, it's not a very happy ending for that particular zebra, but um, the lion catches one. And, uh, and then the next thing you know, the, the lion is, or the lions are sort of chowing down on this particular zebra and all the other zebras are now just standing around eating grass again. You know, their physiological state 
has now returned back to um, back to normal, so to speak. Yeah. What happens with humans is we'll have this old brain kind of physiological um, response, which is perhaps the threat system gets activated, and all of a sudden, you know, our sort of the physical sensations, the thoughts and feelings are sort of going through the roof of anxiety, for, for example. But what happens then is our new brain kicks in mm. and we start to worry or have fearful imagining or start to, to ruminate or, or start to um, criticize ourselves. Self-criticism, for example, kicks in. Uh, and so all of a sudden the, the human's like, did you see that lion? Did you see how big its teeth were? What if it had caught me? What's it like to be eaten by a lion? You you fool, you should have run faster or whatever it yeah. might be. So we have this ability in a sense to take the external, the external threats and so on, and through these higher order brain functions, make that threat internal. Yeah. And then that kind of state of anxiety then persists, you know, and... and it, it, it sort of it, it happens a lot. I, I was driving home the other day, and and I just I was going across a particular bridge here in in Brisbane, and um, I sort of last minute I thought I well I thought I was in the wrong lane, uh, and so I I made a fairly quick and and I think overall safe lane change, <laughs> but um, but as I was changing lanes, the the sort of the side rail mm. uh, kind of loomed large in a way. And, you know, it was, it was sort of a little bit unsettling. And then, you know, kind of for the rest of the drive home, I was thinking about that a lot. And then I got home and I was sort of thinking, geez, that was, that was sort of, it wasn't good. And, and um, you know, sort of the, the, the memory of all of that and, and we start to kind of ruminate over what happened. And then we sort of imagine, you know, what, what could have happened and, and so on. So there's lots of times where this, we get caught up in loops. Loops yeah. of the mind is what we think of them as in CFT, where something activates threat system and then these higher higher order functions of the brain kind of take hold of that and, and we get caught up in, in these these sort of self-perpetuating loops. Yeah, really. and exactly. And I think that that's something that is one of those trade-offs, right? Like our higher order cognitive abilities enabled us to do remarkable things with symbolic thought, but the trade-off being that, well, we can also now imagine terrible things, right? So we, on the one hand, we yes. can plan for the future and we can learn from the past in very astounding ways, right? That allowed us in part to evolve to where we are today as a civilization. But also the other side of it is like, well, we can also hyper fixate on things that, you know, we're afraid of because we can imagine all the things that could possibly go wrong. And... Mm. Our brains aren't very good at telling the difference between quote-unquote reality that's happening externally versus the images in our mind, right? It, it a lot of the time feels just as real. Um, maybe an order of magnitude less, but it's real enough that it activates our systems. And, you know, like the way to think about that is like, um, you know, the power of the mental image is like where you can think about you can think about something that made you really angry, right? A past incident. And if you think about it hard enough and you really put yourself back in that position, like you're going to start to feel the anger inside of you, whatever mm. that feels like mm. for you. 
and the same thing for fear and shame and any emotional experience really mm. um yes and so and then we get stuck on loops trying to solve this problem as if it were a problem yes. uh because that's yes. what your brain's trying to do but it's just not very helpful and and all of a sudden you're just emotionally out of whack and uh you're suffering mm. needlessly at your own you know mind and it happens to all of us mm. right mm. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it, you might think of a delicious meal mm. and, and that's enough to trigger certain aspects of, of physiological responses. In fact, it probably, if I think about it, triggers drive system, you know, in a way. And, and um, now we're kind of salivating at the mouth, you know, thinking about this delicious meal. But, um, but unfortunately, it, it, it happens for people too with much more difficult sorts of phenomena and, mm. and you know the unfortunately things like uh trauma or uh, shame experiences or you know other things like that can can absolutely when remembered can get get us caught up in in those same loops i was speaking with someone just just yesterday about she had a very difficult upbringing and and um her father was a very difficult person and and she has a, a, enormous anger mm-hmm. uh, to still direct. He, he's actually passed now, but um, still has this anger directed towards him for what he did. Um, and, and so she gets a bit caught in loops there. But then the next thing that happens is she gets angry at herself because she thinks, why am I still thinking about him? I shouldn't be thinking about him. I should move on with my life and let all that go. And so then she's starting to feel angry uh, towards and, and critical really towards herself and and then from there she starts to think you know this will never end i'll never get over this and that leads to feelings of of sadness or even she can really get down or depressed sometimes so there's not only that initial loop in and around the experience itself but then there's this kind of aspect which is how we relate to ourselves Mm -hmm. as we um as we have these experiences as well such tricky brains Tricky brains. They're a exactly. goddamn nightmare to deal with sometimes. <laughs> well, they're, they're, there's, there's these trade-offs. I mean, because you're right, like to be able to imagine, to be able to remember, to be able to monitor ourselves in the context of, you know, our social world and so on. I mean, those are, are, are very massive strengths for us, you know, exquisitely designed to, yeah. to help us to, to not only survive and, and so on, but really to flourish as a species. But imagining becomes fearful imagining and remembering becomes ruminating and self-monitoring becomes self-criticism. And then we're caught up in these much more difficult loops um, and we sort of suffer really as a, as a result of all of that with anxiety and depression, as, as you say. Yeah, and suffer greatly, like, you know, I think to varying degrees for each person. But, you know, I mean, it kills people like there's no way around that right like you can mm. think yourself to death in mm-hmm. in a very real sense not but not actively but it's it it happens to lots of people right i mean mm. suicide is a an epidemic at the moment mm. maybe it's always been but we certainly know a lot about it now and fundamentally what so much of that is is our minds commentary and imaging and imagining various aspects of our lives that we've lived or that we have yet 
to live and that we think that we'll never get and you know all of the the shame and the self-blame and the self-criticism and the self-judgment and all externally you know projected so it's blaming the world and blaming life and god and the universe and you know that fuel of anger and just a you know giant mess of emotions that eventually in some people becomes a pain that seems too unbearable to continue right um so that's like a serious trade-off for some people yeah and 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 you know what it's not our fault no that's the key piece there is all of that all of that stuff you've described and and in in various ways we we go through that and and actually none of it's our fault yeah we, we were born with these tricky brains that were designed for us you know and not by us we were born with various genetic strengths and weaknesses that we also didn't get to choose. And then we were born into a family or a caregiving arrangement or a culture or a country or nation or whatever it might be that we also didn't get to choose, you know, and yet all of that kind of shapes us Mm -hmm. uh, and shapes us in terms of gradually who we become. And Absolutely. so this is this is sort of the thing, isn't it? You know, like it's it's not our fault. Even when we're feeling terrible anxiety or we're feeling terribly down or depressed, it it's, it is our tricky brain, and and it, and it's our it's our own personal experiences. And so you know, but but how to manage that? Mm-hmm. that that's the, the 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 interesting thing too. You know, like our brains also are able to sort of learn and change and and grow uh and there's kind of optimism there as well that maybe there are certain things that we can discover that um can help us to to manage our tricky brains a hundred percent let's talk about some of those things because i think that that's super important right in terms of i think we'll keep it general obviously because it's a general uh conversation but so you know starting off with this idea of self-compassion maybe right now would you say that that's a good first step for people is to start cultivating a compassionate inner self yes excellent i mean the the this this is where compassion focused therapy will you know definitely go next is is to start to think about you know perhaps what is compassion and Mm self-compassion really and and how can we start to cultivate that part of ourselves? That part of ourselves that, you know, might be compassionate towards others or yeah. might be compassionate towards ourselves. But, you know, we, we, we think of this as the compassionate self, you know, that, that the sort of the, the part of ourselves that, that's compassionate. In CFT, we, we really think of compassion as a sensitivity to suffering in ourselves and others with a commitment to try to alleviate and prevent that suffering. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of it. You know, it's, it's sort of the, well, it's a, it's a, a sensitivity to suffering, um, but it's right in the definition. You know, it's about being able to be compassionate towards ourselves as well as, as others. And it really is a motivation or a commitment to, to try to take action to help to alleviate some of that suffering and, and perhaps prevent future suffering as well so we we really think of compassion across three flows 
that we might be compassionate towards others. Mm -hmm. We might try to open ourselves up to receiving compassion from others. And we might try to develop that ability to relate to ourselves compassionately or, or develop that, that idea of, of self-compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that it seems to me that the most people are probably fairly good at being compassionate towards other people, right? That's a pretty, as we had discussed earlier, it's a pretty hardwired um, function of being a human. Now, some people might not have that experience and due to the environment they were raised and things like that where compassion was seen as a weakness or something along those lines, they have suppressed and turned off that ability in themselves and some may be pathologically incapable and okay fair enough but by and large um people can be compassionate towards other people uh mm. then the next one i would say in line is like receiving compassion for others i would say probably you get a mixed bunch of some people who can be can receive compassion well and other people who can't and then self-compassion i would say is the least uh well-developed you know, flow of compassion from a general perspective in terms of like most people, especially because our culture doesn't value self-compassion, although it should. Mm. It primarily values achievement and uh, growth and, you know, discipline and things like that, all of which are very important. So it's not that we should get rid of them, but we also need to incorporate this element of, well, actually to really be the best version of yourself, you need to treat yourself with compassion, right? And you need to relate yourself, relate to yourself compassionately for yourself and for other people because the best version of you isn't going to be torturing yourself, right? It's going to be doing the right thing for yourself. And that, as you said earlier, that takes wisdom and courage, right? It's not like it's just being kind and soft and gentle. It's like sometimes being compassionate is doing what you really don't want to do because you need to do it because it's good for you, right? Hmm. That's what I would think. You said, you said a lot of great stuff there. And um, in terms of compassion for others, I mean, this is the one that people are often most familiar with. And, and when we think of compassion, we often think of compassion for others. Um, it, it Often compassion for others isn't boundless though, you know, like a lot of people will have certain bound you know certain things mm. that perhaps get in the way even of compassion for others especially sure if the other certain appraisals you know like if the other person who is suffering is very different to us or you know perhaps we feel like they're to blame for their own suffering or maybe we're not really sure how to help or whether we can cope with with what you know with with dealing with that or with what they're going through yeah. so there can sometimes be uh, little barriers there as well. But but most people, as you say, have a sense when it comes to family and friends and their community and so on. Yeah, they, they absolutely can connect with that idea of, of compassion for others, which is great, really, because that's often a nice way in. So for someone who doesn't feel as comfortable or as able to, to be compassionate for, towards themselves, often what we'll do is we'll have a think. You know, what's it like when you're compassionate to others? What's mm. a memory of a time when you were compassionate towards someone else? You know, what did that feel like in the body? What, what was the, the physiology of that or your body posture or your facial expression or voice tones? You know, can we have a sense of what 
what it's like for you when you're in that compassionate motivation. Mm. And then is there a way that we can gradually start to practice that and direct that also towards ourselves in a way? I remember being at a mindful self-compassion retreat many years ago uh, and Chris Germer, who was one of the developers of, of MSC, Mindful Self-Compassion, um, he sort of said that in many ways, you know, we're, we're compassionate to human beings and to other living creatures and maybe even to the world, but, but we're compassionate to other human beings and we're a human being too. Mm. So in some ways, all self-compassion is, is just slightly widening our circle of compassion to also include ourselves. And so that can be a really nice way in is just to think, what am I like? What do I do? What does it feel like? How do I think when I'm being compassionate towards someone else? And can I start to offer that same kind of compassion to myself when, when I'm also suffering or, or struggling or facing life difficulties and, and so on? Yeah, because it, it's the same physiological system that gets activated, right? Mm. Of that compassion. So it, it makes sense that you can start off with, well, what's it like to be compassionate to other people? What's it like to receive compassion from other people? And then change the direction of the intention, let's say, to include ourselves in that circle, right? Which mm. I think is often very difficult for people to do. Like yes. It, it is, especially people who are high in self-criticism and self-judgment and yes. self-shame, right? The compassion mm. element is, which is why the CFT exists evidently, um, <laughs> because of, you know, people who are like that. And um, again, it's not their fault that they're like that. And there's ways mm. that we can learn to work through that. But fundamentally, it's like there's a big blockage against being compassionate towards yourself. Right. Mm. And this this was... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Please go ahead. This was one of uh, Professor Paul Gilbert's kind of real discoveries, I guess you could say, or, or something that, that is, is very important in, in amongst all of this. And, and that is that we do experience fears, blocks and resistances to compassion mm. and self-compassion. You know, there can be certain fears. In other words, you know, we might feel fearful that that actually if we're compassionate towards ourselves, then we'll just be seen as weak or or, we'll, or somehow we'll be kind of judged negatively for that. Or there might be blocks mm-hmm. where the person thinks, oh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to be self-compassionate, but I don't even really know how to do it. You know, like what does that even mean to be self-compassionate? And then there can be resistances, you know, mm. like, um, you know, like uh, self-compassion, you know, like it's dog eat dog out there. You got to be tough, you know, or, or, or something like that. So we have these these fears, blocks and resistances. And and probably a really important one is just as you said, and, and that is our tendency towards self-criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're often more likely to, uh, well, it, it's so interesting. We, we treat ourselves, you know, differently to how we would treat a friend. You know, like if we, if we had a friend and we were trying to motivate them or whatever, we, we, we probably wouldn't say to them the kinds of critical you know, harsh, you know, sort of sometimes self-attacking, self-condemning things mm. that we might say to ourselves uh, in the form of that, that self-criticism. And, and so, but, you know, like oddly enough, we do that thinking it's going to motivate us only to really feel 
kind of less motivated and feels small and no good. And, and some of that really shame-based self-criticism just leads to feelings of, of shame. Yeah. And, and so, but, but we worry if I'm not self-critical, what if I get lax and lazy or what if I make mistakes or, you know, I need to be self-critical because if I can be critical towards myself first, then nothing anyone else will say will ever hurt me. Or, mm -hmm. you know, there'll be these, these things that people attach to self-criticism that makes them or, or really blocks them from this idea of self-compassion. Uh, and so often with CFT, you, you know, that, that's, that really, in some ways that is the work, you know, is to identify what might be some of the things, the barriers, the blocks, the reservations around self-compassion, and how can we start to work through some of those so that some of that, um, that, that self-compassion that is in there can actually start to arise in, in yeah. the person. So, yeah, perhaps like something that one can do is to just think about what function do I believe my self-criticism plays in my life, right? Because it's questionable whether it does serve that function or not. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the research suggests that uh, criticism is a not a very good motivator. Um, that I mean, you can see this in all any parenting literature, right? That that's not mm. the best way to parent children is by you know, through like harsh criticism and judgment and blame, like it just doesn't work so well. Like it might work a little bit, but you're also, you know, doing a little bit of damage. Um, whereas, you know, compassionate encouragement, while also being firm and tough and, you know, structured and things like that, like it's not just a free for all, but that's where the real empowerment comes from. And so if you look in oneself at like, well, what function does my self-criticism seem to serve? Like, what is it telling me it's doing for me? That's a good place to start to see, okay, well, is this really true or not, right? And maybe experiment mm. with something else. Maybe say, okay, well, instead of, you know, I know, you know, my brain's going to tell me all these things because I messed this up or I'm worried about this or that, but like, maybe I'm going to try something else, right? Maybe this hasn't been working so well and that's why I can't get rid of this like perpetual suffering that I'm inflicting on myself so maybe try something else try be compassionate towards yourself and see what happens right what's the worst mm. that can happen doesn't work um but yeah. you might be surprised yes, it's, it's it, exactly and, and well and you sort of alluded to the idea too that um, there, there is such a thing as self-improving self-criticism you know like that we we can actually sort of do something and then just critique how we went and notice the bits that didn't go so well and kind of practice that maybe, you know, the, the, the professional golfer who after a golf the game sort of, you know, sort of works out, oh, you know, I didn't do so well with my short game, so I'll just go to the practice sand trap or something and hit a thousand balls. You know, that, that's, that's good, actually. That's helpful, that sort of self-improving self-criticism. Yeah. But yes, it's, it's the self-hating self-attacking, self-condemning, shame-based self-criticism that, that can actually be, um, you know, very problematic when it comes to, well, motivation, but also just, uh, you know, sort of psychological distress and, mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Um, like, there's a really interesting... I'll just tell you a quick story. So, like, um, in the, when I first started doing podcasting, right, I had a really hard time listening and watching myself uh, because all that would come up is just 
huge self-criticism and judgment and like it was just painful to watch right because all I could see were problems and you know why didn't I do it differently or like this is bad or that's bad or you should have known better you should have done better you should have said better right all of these things that would start and then eventually I was just like I can't do it it's too stressful um too painful and then eventually and it's worse if you're watching it's a matter of interest than just listening because then you get the visual element too and it's like why am I sitting like that why does my head look like that you know it's just like all sorts of nonsense uh but eventually I reached the point where because I forced myself to keep doing it for lots of different reasons partly because I have to but also because I was like that's how I'm going to get better and I reached this point where I was like well what if I approach it like I'm watching a podcast that's not with me in it, right? So I'm trying to take this objective approach of saying, what if I viewed this like I was a fan of the show instead of it being me in in the seat, right? And say, okay, so yes, I can identify areas that I think could be better, right? I can use less filler words, I can look at the camera more. I can have better questions to ask. So yes, there's very important areas for improvement and I'm still improving hopefully every time. But I don't view myself in the same in the same light of saying all of these harsh self-judgments. It's more just like practical steps that I can take to improve. Mm-hmm. And that really made a big difference. That sort of cognitive shift from viewing it as me and like feeling like I was there to being like, no, I'm just going to watch this as if I were like editing or watching another podcast. And it just happens to be Mm. me in there. And that just made a huge difference, right? Now, I know it's not exactly self-compassion that, but it's interesting to know that, you know, you can change your way you look at things and yourself, right? Because now I no longer have these harsh self-criticisms and I'm happy to watch videos of me like it, doesn't even bother me in the slightest even when I mess up or Mm. say something silly or say something I shouldn't have or whatever it is I'm like yeah it happens you know I didn't plan on it a lot of the stuff is just what happens in the moment and so that just is what it is and I I accept it and just move forwards and say how would I what would I say to someone if it weren't me right like would I say oh you're so stupid. Why did you say that? Like, that was so dumb. You should have thought better. Like, no, I wouldn't say that to someone at all, right? I would say, no, it's okay. Maybe there's some consequences to this or here's how we can do better next time. And you just build up. And so that was a really interesting lesson that I learned doing, you know, podcast editing over the years. Beautiful example. And and what you managed to do there was just have sort of mind awareness i mean you you brought awareness to your mind and and your tricky brain and what it was doing and the way that the self-criticism was sneaking in and that it was kind of well it nearly derailed the whole thing in Mm. a way you know which you know but whereas what you managed to do was make a shift from that more painful shame-based self-criticism to to what you called before which is that compassionate self-correction and compassionate encouragement uh, coming from a compassionate mo- motivation, still wanting to do well, yeah. still wanting to improve and and you know kind of flourish with with the the stuff you're doing, um, but you know coming from that much more compassionate motivation. And if you think about uh, sort of for, for for many of us, the the kind of almost daily um, analogous kind of experience 
is just when we're looking in the mirror in the morning. Mm. You know, a, a lot of us look in the mirror, but sort of don't look in the mirror. You know, we're sort of brushing our teeth or combing our hair. I, I, I don't comb my hair much. And so Neither do I. I. Know about that, but <laughs> neither do you. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're, we're, there we are in the mirror, but we're kind of averting our gaze because when we look at ourselves, up comes the the self-criticism you know we worry about something about how we look or what we you know whatever it might be and 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 the interesting thing and i'll just plant this seed actually for for perhaps some of your listeners but you know to 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 see if you can practice self-compassion in the mirror yeah in the morning you're there in the bathroom you're doing your thing and then you just pause and you just look into your own eyes and you see the the humanity there and and the way that we have you know sort of these lives that we're leading and we're sort of there's, there's good bits and not so good bits and and we we sort of struggle with certain things and we have these tricky brains and then just a little expression of of self-compassion you know may, may you be well may you be peaceful may you be may you cope with with the things that might face you today as, mm-hmm. as you go about as you go about your day. So there's sort of, yeah, I think even that's a nice little kind of moment to, to sort of practice the, the self-compassion. Yeah, I think it's a perfect moment to practice it because that's arguably when people are most critical of themselves, right, is mm. with to do with our appearance and uh, one of the least controllable things in our lives most of the time, <laughs> by and large. I mean, you can do some stuff, but like, you you pretty much are who you are, right? And so yes. to really take that approach and look at yourself and say, you know, I, I'm just a human and I have struggles in life and it's okay. And, yes. you know, yep. um, my struggles are important to me and it doesn't matter what other people's struggles are at this moment. Like it's just about thinking about me and all the good things and all the bad things. And, you know, what would it be like to be compassionate towards to include myself in that circle right as a yes, as yeah. another human yeah, yeah i really like as that. you said uh, as you said earlier it, it it is it is tricky to do and it, and it takes practice and so on i mean in cft there might be a little sequence that we would work through to to kind of get to that point you know? mm-hmm. and so it, it really begins with bringing it back to the body and trying to Kind of, I mean, threat system and drive system, I guess, is is all very much sympathetic nervous system activation. It's all about the body upregulating itself, and and uh, versus you know, kind of the parasympathetic nervous system, where it might be more about downregulating and yeah. creating a sense of calmness and and safeness. And so we really try to practice you know parasympathetic nervous system activation is slowing down the body slowing down the mind using things like uh, body posture facial expression inner voice tone soothing rhythm breathing going really back to all of these kind of fundamentals in a way Mm. to help mainly help to create a sense of safeness and calmness but also a sense of strength and groundedness Mm -hmm. groundedness in the body uh, and then the next step might be, especially using imagery type practices and so on, uh, is to, again, kind of cultivate a, a, a sense of safeness and, and calmness. A, a, a good colleague of, of ours, uh, Dr. Deborah Lee, 
has a little saying that is, a calm mind thinks differently. Mm. And so if we can use the body and use the imagery to create a sense of safeness and calmness, then we can start thinking differently and approaching differently, perhaps the, the various aspects of our lives and, and what we might be facing. Yeah. And then from there, then we start to tap into uh, cultivating the compassionate self. Uh, and you, you mentioned them again, but, but yes, the, the, the key qualities really there that we start to kind of play with and, and learn about and practice and using imagery, using embodiment practices and so on is really to cultivate that wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, that we all just find ourselves here, that we have these tricky brains, um, that there's these trade-offs. You know, in some ways, they're really powerful brains that are really helpful. In other ways, they, 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 our brains do cause us a lot of suffering. And so that sort of the wisdom of it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. You know, that's the wisdom piece of compassion. And then we move to strength and courage, having that sense of strength, stability, determination, um, emotional courage, confidence Mm -hmm. that, you know, I I feel kind of steady and ready for, you know, what may arise. And and I know I can work towards coping with that too. And then the third key quality is a caring commitment. So this, this sort of commitment to being caring, but sort of supportive, encouraging, helpful. Uh, in, actually, in fact, that's a nice little phrase as well. You know, compassion is, may I be helpful mm. to myself and others? Uh, may I be helpful rather than harmful to myself and others? And so we really start to, to practice um, all of those qualities, really start to, to, to develop and, and gradually embody this compassionate self. Yeah. You know what it's like. To, be, to, to really embody that part of me that, that is compassionate. And then we can take that part of ourselves to things like our anxiety or anger or sadness, to our self-criticism or our shame, to those moments where we're feeling dark and depressed even. We start to bring our compassionate self to those other aspects of ourselves and, mm-hmm. and, and gradually start to soften some of those aspects of suffering that we might be experiencing. Yeah, and it is it's a process, right? Like it, it's you, a process. You can't just switch it. Um and it takes a long time. I mean, you have to think about how long it took you to get to where you are right now and how many iterations of the self-criticism you've run through in your head and so you're starting up a whole competing motivation that I mean, it has some foundation to it and you know, fair enough and you can build it up quicker than you you don't need the same amount of time as your rest the rest of your life but it's something yeah. that takes time and that's worth working towards right and it's probably yes. a relatively exponential growth like it probably starts off like real slow um, and really difficult to do but as you keep going and keep going things pick up and pick up and it gains more traction and more strength and you have you build your internal resources and you learn to ground yourself in your body better and you learn to notice what's happening in your mind and in your body a lot quicker and a lot sooner and with less judgment and less shame. And then you can start to make choices about how you want to approach yourself and others and, you know, actually act on the commitment of may I be helpful to myself, right? Or Mm. may I 
be helpful to myself and others. And I think that that's mm. a it's a really powerful tool and a powerful strategy. Yeah, and and just as a matter of interest, we we've carried out various preliminary studies and and some randomized controlled trials with CFT in groups. We we've published a little while ago uh, a, a program with. Uh, female survivors of childhood sexual abuse mm-hmm. and used um, compassion-focused therapy there and, and have found really strikingly, uh, we found both reductions in, in shame, uh, but also in some of those post-traumatic stress-related symptoms. So CFT kind of seems to help there. We've also done some work with combat veterans and their partners uh, running a, a sort of a, a CFT group and, and that's just been published quite recently mm. uh, and, and again found uh, some real improvements not only for the, the, the veterans themselves but also for their spouses changes in in self-criticism over a I think that was about a six-week intervention hmm. and then thirdly another uh, RCT that's coming out very soon is is with with people who were experiencing body weight shame so shame specifically about their, their sort of appearance and, and bodies uh, and again uh, uh, that was a 12-week intervention I think where um, it really showed improvements in in self-criticism and shame so it you're right it does take practice and and you know there's a kind of a sometimes it, it sort of starts slower if you like and whatever but actually over a, a over a sort of a relatively you know, six to 12 weeks, say, or, you know, whatever, we, we, it, it really, people can make changes and can start to soften some of that self-criticism and shame and just cultivate that more compassionate self-to-self relating. Yeah. No, and, and that's a fantastic timeline, relatively speaking, right? I mean, if you could change yeah. the way you relate to yourself in 12 weeks, like, man, you got your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. well exactly it, it it's two steps forward one step back but i think yeah there's definitely uh some real utility in in cultivating this this compassionate part of ourselves yeah awesome well listen stan thanks so much for coming back on it's been an absolute pleasure um i will link all of your stuff in the description uh is there anything you would like to promote of yourself where can people find you please well, um, yes, I, I would. Uh, well, firstly, thank you, Shane, for having me on your wonderful podcast. I'm so glad you persisted with it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm a regular listener as well, and and so um, it, it's great stuff. I'm more than happy for people to uh, email me. I'm Stan at psychologyconsultants.com.au. Uh, I do have a website, stansteindl.com, uh, and also on Twitter and, and Facebook and, and all the rest of it. Um, there's a few things happening. Uh, probably one thing is is I run a, a, a fairly regular Compassionate Mind training course. So if anybody is interested in uh, doing some, some work in this area, by all means, email me and I can send you some information. And um, So yeah, thanks very awesome. much. Thank you, and I look forward to having you on again soon. Okay, thanks, Shane. Bye.